This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks so much and uh, welcome everyone. I appreciate the invitation. Um, just have a few disclosures that are primarily research-related. Uh, I'm not really going to talk about any of these products per se, although we'll talk about um, pacemakers. Medtronic is one of the main um, manufacturers of pacemakers, along with some others. So a disclaimer before I launch in here. Um, this is potentially a lot of information that I'm going to try to condense into about an hour. So please keep in mind um, that for someone... Uh, with my training, um, this information took about two years to learn. So um, uh, for a cardiac electrophysiologist, that means after medical school, we do internal medicine residency. Then we do a general cardiology fellowship. And then instead of going out into practice and, and doing general cardiology, we then do two more years just focusing on rhythm disturbances. Also, some of these slides by themselves represent a good half hour at a time that I routinely spend with patients in clinic trying to describe uh, various syndromes. So I will focus on the highlights, um, and I'm going to try to kind of help distinguish when should you worry, uh, because I do see a lot of patients that don't need to see me, and part of my hope here is to try to help um, reduce that kind of unneeded anxiety and clinic visit. Um, but then there are some patients that really should see me because um, we can help them. Um, and then, of course, I'm, more happy, I, I'm happy to answer more detailed questions at the end. Um, so uh, I may not get into every single detail on every single syndrome. So before we understand an abnormal heart rhythm, it's first important to understand a normal heart rhythm. So this is kind of a cut-out view of the heart where we see the two atria, the right atrium and the left atrium, they pump blood just into the ventricles. The ventricles do most of the work. This is the right ventricle and the left ventricle, uh, and they really pump blood to the rest of the body. And when an electrical signal starts, usually it starts in this little structure in the right atrium called the sinus node. And that fires or depolarizes or activates about once a second. And we'll talk a little bit about heart rate and what's, quote, normal. That then propagates through the atria. So the um, muscle cells in the atria, as in the ventricle, are all electrically connected. So when you have one impulse, as long as those cells are ready, meaning they aren't refractory because they just fired or depolarized, they will then depolarize. These valves that separate the atrium from the ventricles cannot conduct electricity. So normally, the only way for an electrical impulse to travel from the atria to the ventricles is through this structure called the AV node. Uh, that AV node, ha node has some special properties uh, I will talk about. That then comes down this little structure called the bundle of Hiss, which then breaks into the left bundle branch and the right bundle branch. That continues to branch um, to activate the ventricles in a very synchronized, efficient fashion, and in fact, a very rapid fashion. So this conduction tissue that we see here in this bright yellow actually conducts very fast, which in this case is a good thing. Okay, so what is a normal heart rate? 
So there's a conventional answer to this, and that is that it's between 60 and 100 beats per minute. But I want to um, educate you all so to, to make the point that that is a estimate and that people can certainly have heart rates slower than 60 that, is, that are nothing to worry about and heart rates faster than 100 that are nothing to worry about. So first, how do you check your heart rate? So generally we infer the heart rate, really the electrical activity from our pulse and pretty much that's a, there's a one-to-one correlation. Not always exactly, but for these purposes, it works well. So one, you can check in your neck. Better is to check on your wrist and just to go through how you find your pulse if you, if you don't know. So if you <clears throat> take your wrist and there's a bone on the kind of thumb side of your wrist, and if you move inwards towards the middle and just feel your wrist as you do, the next thing you'll notice that's pretty obvious is a tendon, kind of a more spongy but hard thing. And usually you can find your pulse between that bone and that tendon. And that's where the, a particular artery called the radial artery sits. And generally you use these two fingers. And you don't want to push super hard. If you push really hard, you can block the pulse or you block the blood flow and then you're not going to feel a pulse. So you should feel lightly and, and you can go kind of towards the thumb or towards the, um, up the arm to find where the strongest pulse is. And by definition, the pulse is the number of beats in a minute. So one way to know what that heart rate is is to count for 60 seconds. That takes a really long time. Most people don't have that much patience. So usually we count for 15 seconds and then multiply by four to determine the heart rate. Okay, so let's talk about this 60 to 100. So as I mentioned, this implies that 60 is abnormal. Certainly lower than 60, we call, by definition, that is bradycardia. If the heart rate is faster than 100, that means tachycardia. Neither bradycardia or tachycardia mean anything good or bad. They just simply describe those rates. As I mentioned, the great majority of the time, heart rates less than 60 or greater than 100 are still normal, part of actually being a healthy person. So what determines the heart rate? So we talked about how the heart rate generally originates in this sinus node. And it's important to talk about this um, autonomic nervous system. This is the part of our nervous system that's kind of not under our direct conscious control. And it has two big arms to it. One is called the sympathetic nervous system. This is also essentially adrenaline or what people talk to as fight or flight. The other one is the parasympathetic uh, nervous system, which is essentially the opposite. The main nerve that delivers that parasympathetic tone is called the vagus nerve. So we talk about vagal tone uh, kind of in the same way as we would talk about parasympathetic tone, or someone gets really vagal That implies they have a lot of parasympathetic output. So normally when you exercise or you feel anxious, you have adrenaline. That speeds up the heart. There's nothing about exercise by itself that speeds up the heart. So if you took the nerves out of the body and took out the adrenal gland magically and ran up some stairs, the heart rate isn't isn't just going to magically speed up. 
The reason it speeds up when you run up some stairs is because the adrenal glands release adrenaline or epinephrine, norepinephrine, and the, the nerves from the sympathetic nervous system activate the heart. When we are resting or digesting after a big meal, that's when we tend to have a little bit more vagal tone. That's when our heart rate tends to be a little slower. And these two are always in tension. And this is something we often see in health, that health is a balance of things. Um, So these two are always um, kind of opposing one another, and different conditions will change them. And that's healthy behavior. We expect the heart rate to vary. If the heart rate is exactly the same all the time, that is actually abnormal. Okay, so faster than 100 beats per minute. As I mentioned, this can be, is healthy and expected if you exercise, if you're nervous, or if you're excited. So then you might ask, well, isn't there a number? Can't you just give me a number where it's too fast? Um, Generally, no. And, And I'll talk about if you have a prolonged fast rhythm. But in general, when we're thinking about, well, do we need to do something for this patient or this person? We're wondering, are they feeling poorly? So if someone's rate is fast and that makes them feel crummy, they feel faint, they feel out of breath, they feel fatigue, and you're going to hear me talk about those symptoms over and over again with various abnormal heart rhythms, and that's out of proportion to the activity, then that's a problem. Then that is almost by definition too fast, if in fact that's the primary cause. You can also have a fast heart rate in reaction to other things that might make you feel out of breath or fatigued. So we have to sort that out as well. Now, all else being equal, if someone felt totally fine, if their heart rate is going fast, and in this case I would say about 120 beats per minute, all the time. I don't mean walking up some stairs, because that can be totally normal. I mean sitting there genuinely relaxed, asleep, and their heart rate is still going 120 or faster, that may cause a problem and and specifically can actually cause a weakening of the lower chamber. That's called a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. That is extremely rare um, unless there's some other electrical problem going on that we'll we'll talk about. Even then, uh, it's quite rare. Um, There is a syndrome called inappropriate sinus tachycardia that we still don't completely understand. And these patients have a fast rate that appears to be arising from the sinus node. So it's different than some of the other mechanisms or electrical circuits I'll talk about. It's just the sinus node is going faster than we would expect. Interestingly, it's commonly seen in healthcare workers. And there's some thinking that perhaps at least in some of these um, patients... They are taught an abnormal, you know, if your heart rate's faster than 100, that's not normal. And they check their pulse, and it's, hmm, why is my pulse 98 or 101? And then they get nervous. So then they release some adrenaline, and then their heart rate goes up a little bit more, and then that makes them more nervous, and it just continues to cycle. And, And you can imagine that these actual connections between the nervous system and the sinus can actually form. So sometimes, to help these patients, we tell them, try not to check your heart rate. Just try not to worry about it. And we even see this in people, for example, wearing Fitbits or smartwatches that they're constantly being told what their heart rate is, and that freaks them out. And I've told patients, just put it away, just don't even look at it, and they can actually uh, improve. The other things that can help 
Um, or the other thing that can help is exercise. So when people exercise regularly, especially if it's the type of exercise that gets the heart rate up, endurance kind of exercise, that actually tends to increase resting vagal tone, more parasympathetic activity, and that can help as well. Now, despite those kind of lifestyle changes, some people, for some reason, continue to have uh, too fast of a sinus rate. We generally don't think that's dangerous. And this is something that comes up all the time in, in my field of electrophysiology, that we make a distinction between what's dangerous, so we have to do something because we're worried, and I'll give you some examples of that, versus, you know, this isn't dangerous at all, but we want to treat it if it's bothering you, if you're not feeling well, and we make it very clear, the reason we're going to do this procedure or the reason we're going to start this medicine is just to help you feel better. <clears throat> and a lot of patients will then say, oh, no, 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 I don't feel that bad. I just wanted to make sure uh, I, I didn't need to worry or this wasn't a sign something was going to go horribly wrong. So for people who still feel crummy, these lifestyle changes don't count, There's a, uh, don't, don't help. There's a new uh, drug called Evabradine that actually works really well it's, um, for people with inappropriate sinus tachycardia, and in the past there was really uh, nothing that was helpful. Okay, let's go the other direction. What heart rate is too slow? So once again, there isn't really a number here. It really depends on symptoms, and it's very common for the heart rate to go slow when we're sleeping. In fact, very fit athletes, marathon runners, and young people, their heart rate can be in the 30s when they're asleep, and we're not going to treat them for that. They feel fine. They get up, run around, their heart rate can go up to 200 uh, as part of normal physiology. So again, we worry about it being too slow. If someone feels faint, they're passing out, they're tired, or they're out of breath because their heart rate's not increasing sufficiently. So let's talk a little bit about passing out. And as I said... Each of these slides could be a whole lecture. Um, but this is so common, it's worth spending a little bit of time on. So the most common cause of passing out is something called vasovagal syncope. Vaso as in the um, vasculature. Um, and syncope just means passing out. Vagal refers to that parasympathetic nervous system I talked about. Classically, what happens is that someone has a surge of vagal tone which can slow the heart rate, and it will cause the blood vessels to dilate. The classic scenario is someone who sees blood, and they faint at the sight of blood. And what's thought to happen is actually the sympathetic nervous system gets kicked in, their heart rate goes really fast, their blood pressure goes up, and then all those kind of normal regulatory mechanisms kick in and say, wait, 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 wait that's way too much. And it then kicks in the vagal tone, which also is too exaggerated, and then they pass out, for example. Um, the way we make this diagnosis is not by any fancy test. It's really 99% from the history, from the story that we get. People tend to feel crummy. They often feel nauseated or they feel faint first. And the very good news is this is generally totally benign. It's extremely common. There was one um, survey of medical students, and they found that 50% had had a, a, an episode a vasovagal syncope. Once in a while, we have a patient that has an extreme response to this um, where their heart stops for 12 seconds and they pass out and they really injure themselves. I, I had a patient who had seizures because this, these were so severe. In those cases, a pacemaker actually can help. But interestingly, we don't generally think of the reason for pacemakers in these people as a way to prolong their life 
Because again, it's felt to be benign. We don't generally think of this as dangerous. Uh, again, this is an example where a pacemaker might help with quality of life, it's just help them feel better. And rarely some drugs uh, can be helpful. Okay, so if we think of vasovagal syncope as kind of an extreme end of heart rate slowing because of a functional or dynamic process, meaning that's the, really the effect of the nervous system on the heart, the, another kind of contrary example is when the heart goes too slow because there is a structural problem in the heart. And this is when we start to think more about pacemakers and when pacemakers really can help. And this happens when scar tissue develops in the sinus node or in the AV node. Um, And we don't totally understand why this happens. We know this tends to happen in some people with age. Um, uh, And here, the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, they don't have as much of, of a role. And in fact, one of the ways we diagnose this is we put someone on a, tread, on a treadmill when we expect their sympathetic nervous system to increase the rate, but it doesn't. So they're at 50 beats per minute just sitting there, which normally would not be a problem. Then they get on the treadmill, and they're really tired, and they're pushing themselves, and their heart rate is 50 beats per minute. In some cases, it can even slow, in fact, um, with more uh, adrenaline. So um, we've done a, a couple of studies to try to understand why this happens, and I'm sorry this table is coming across a little small. What we think are risk factors for this are high blood pressure, increasing age. We have some evidence that actually uh, European ancestry uh, may be important, Um, a higher uh, systolic blood pressure in particular, uh, and higher uh, glucose. Um, We we presented this recently at the American Heart Association uh, meeting. We know that people who have what are called right bundle branch block or left bundle branch block are at higher risk. Now, those are findings that we see on the EKG, and I showed you that first picture where that his, his bundle branches in those two uh, uh, bundles, and they can be blocked. When we see a bundle branch block in clinic, we don't do anything about it in general. We don't worry about it, but it may be a sign that there's a risk of that progressing, although, again, the majority do not. Uh, what we thought was interesting about this study was that we found that physical activity uh, or a lack of of physical activity actually predicted a higher risk of conduction disease, another reason to try to exercise regularly. Okay, so when do we treat these slower blocked rhythms due to scar tissue? So kind of the same thing. If it's in the sinus node, there's not a number. It really is if people have symptoms. So if they've passed out, then, and we think that's because their sinus node is too slow or stop sometimes, that's a reason for a pacemaker. Or if they can't exercise that can't do the, do the things that they normally want to do, that's generally a reason for a pacemaker. The AV node's a little different. Usually if there's block or, or severe slowing in the AV node or that His bundle because of conduction disease, people are going to feel it, and that's an easy uh, answer. Benef- they benefit from a pacemaker. Sometimes people don't necessarily feel unwell, but there are certain patterns of block we can see between the atrium and the ventricles that tell us that person's at such a high risk of developing a complete block in their AV node that they um, should get a pacemaker. Okay, so um, just a couple of words about pacemakers. So this is a chest X-ray of a patient uh, where we placed a pacemaker. So what we do is, and I'll show you, so this is kind of what that 
generator looks like, this part. And then this is what the tip of those, these, you see these leads. One is going into the right ventricle here, and one is going into the right atrium. A little hard to see on this projection, but um, these are what the leads look like. So what we do is we generally make a little incision uh, in the chest. We make a little pocket under the skin. Some people will do it also under the muscle. We enter the vein and uh, from outside and then place these leads under x-ray guidance um, into various places. And uh, if we want in the question and answer uh, period, I can get into why we put it in different places. But in general, most of the time, one in the right ventricle, sometimes one in the and the right uh, atrium. And then we attach it to one of those little generators, tuck that in that pocket, and sew it up. It takes about an hour, hour and a half. Usually patients go home the next morning. They theoretically could go home that same day. At some institutions, they do. We like to keep patients overnight, just make sure they're doing okay. We can communicate with the device via a computer, check a chest X-ray, make sure uh, everything looks okay. And the recovery is minimal. Uh, They can get up, walk around, uh, no problem, even that same day. Okay, so moving on, that's a lot about kind of heart rate in general, too fast, too slow. So now I'm going to move to skipped beats. So important to know that every muscle in the heart, every muscle cell in the heart, has the capability to beat on its own. So if you put it in a Petri dish with enough nutrition, it'll just keep beating. Um, And sometimes, for some reason, a cell or a group of cells just likes to beat uh, a little earlier than the others. So we'll first talk about premature atrial contractions, which are also called PACs. Some people call them APCs or uh, APBs for beats. So this is from an EKG or an ECG or an electrocardiogram. So this little guy is called the P wave. That is essentially the electrical manifestation of the atria contracting. That then travels down, that signal, as we talked about, through the AV node. And there's usually a little bit of a silent period here because the AV node doesn't um, manifest on an EKG. And then we have this bigger signal that's called a QRS complex. That is the ventricles contracting or being really electrically activated. And then this T wave is the the ventricles recovering or repolarizing. So you notice this person's kind of going along in sinus and then boom, There's this early guy that is early, and you also notice that P wave looks a little different. So this P wave is coming from somewhere other than the sinus node, and it came a little early. So these are very common. We essentially all have these. If we monitor everyone long enough, we see them. And it's not uncommon if I order a monitor, we're monitoring someone for two, three, four weeks, and they have a couple of PACs, I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, most of the time we don't feel them. Some people, for some reason, do feel them and can be bothered by them. Um, As I said, generally nothing to worry about, but there is a spectrum of of frequency. So some may have one of these in two weeks. Some may have 20,000 of these in a day. Um, Most tend to be towards that uh, lower end. We uh, published a study that got a lot of press, uh, as shown here, picked up by the New York Times, showing that those who have more of these atrial ectopic beats, or PACs, are at a higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation. And we'll talk about atrial fibrillation in a little bit. Uh, that's one of the most important rhythms that we have, and we're very interested in figuring out how we can 
predict those who are going to get it, and maybe prevent it. And this, this sort of observation implies that maybe if we got rid of those PACs early, maybe we could prevent AFib in large numbers of people. We're still uh, working on that. So what do we do when we see people with PACs? And I do see people in my clinic sometimes who just have uh, bothersome skipped beats that they're feeling. We get a, a monitor and we see, oh, it's due to these PACs. Again, usually it's just reassurance. And I'll tell the patient, you know, there's, you don't need to worry about this. This is not imminently dangerous. And once in a while they'll say, yeah, thank you. I understand it's not imminently dangerous, but it's still bothering me. It just make, doesn't make me, I don't like how it, I feel. In those cases, we can prescribe some medicines. In some cases, especially if they're very frequent and very bothersome, we can do a procedure called a catheter ablation that um, I will describe. And then in terms of this risk of atrial fibrillation, this is a relatively new new finding. There isn't really a consensus as to what to do in that respect, and we continue to research this. And, And one area that we're looking at is to see, is it really the PACs coming from certain areas uh, that are the culprit, and maybe then we could really hone in on the people that um, would that are at risk for AFib and might benefit from suppression uh, of those PACs. Okay, just as one can have early beats in the upper chamber, one can have early beats coming from the lower chamber. So these are called premature ventricular contractions, or PVCs. So again, here we have another electrocardiogram where we see the P wave coming from the sinus, this narrow QRS. And the reason this is as narrow as it is is because that depolarization went very rapidly through that conduction system, that Hiss uh, bundle and then those bundle branches. So you can imagine if that's happening rapidly, you get this very sharp uh, kind of up-down or or down-up. So then we have another beat, again, P wave, QRS, totally normal. And then we have this early beat that looks wide. So it looks very different. And that is a beat arising from somewhere else in the ventricle. And it's wide because the time it takes to propagate through the ventricles is longer than it would if it's going through the normal conduction system because this beat is propagating from muscle cell to muscle cell. And the muscle cells don't have that special property of conducting as fast as those bundle branches. So these are also quite common. We see them again all the time, uh, tends to depend more on how long we monitor someone for. Again, may or may not cause symptoms. People can have a lot of these and not feel them at all. Some people have them uh, rarely, but they feel every single one. Um, Like PACs, generally uh, nothing to do or worry about, but again, there is a spectrum of frequency. And here we've made a little bit more progress in terms of actually translating that frequency into how we practice. So there was an observation several years ago that some people with heart failure, because their hearts were weak, their ventricles were weak, who had a lot of PVCs could really benefit from ablation of their PVCs, this procedure where we put a catheter in the heart and burn the area responsible for that PAC or where that PVC is arising. In many cases, a very sick, very weak heart can, can um, turn into a completely healthy, normal heart if they have a lot of PVCs, if there's not another clear reason for their heart failure. So that made us think, um, you know, could it be uh, that PVCs are, can predict heart failure? And we, did, we looked at this in a large community-based population, an NIH-funded study, and actually found 
that more, with, more, more PVCs did predict a higher risk of heart failure. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody with PVCs is at risk for heart failure, and this is similar to PACs in that um, we are trying to figure out what type of PVCs may be responsible. Um, before I move on to the next slide, I, I wanted to make this uh, one point in terms of the symptoms that some people experience. So oftentimes, the symptoms they experience is not directly due to this early beat, but rather it's due to this return beat. So because of this PVC, this kind of resets the heart. So you have a relative pause before the next normal beat. During that pause, the heart is just filling up with blood. The more the heart fills with blood, the stronger the next, that stronger that beat will be. So what patients often describe is this sense that their heart stopped for a minute and then boom, then they got this woo kind of big feeling and made them cough or kind of a scary feeling. And so what they're often feeling is actually this return beat. The other point to make here is that if this beat is early enough, it may not have had enough time to fill, so it may not result in a pulse. So some people will feel, the, feel their pulse, and this can be a cause of, oh, my heart rate is going 30 beats per minute or 35 beats per minute. But electrically, it's actually faster. It's just that those PVCs are not, um, have not had enough time to fill to result uh, in a pulse. Okay, getting back to this. So what do we do? So again, most of the time, nothing. If a patient is really bothered by these, they hate that sensation, even though we tell them, you know, you don't need to worry about this, you're not going to die from this, then we may consider medicines or, again, uh, curative, potentially catheter ablation. Uh, now, if the heart is weak and there are a lot of PVCs, and generally we mean 10 or 20% of all beats, another way to quantify that is 10,000 or 20,000 in 24 hours, which we can tell by ordering a, a, a monitor. I'll, I'll tell you more about that um, towards the end. In those cases, then most electrophysiologists would say those people should probably have an ablation or at least be considered for an ablation of their PVCs because that may really help their heart failure. Now, what if someone feels fine, uh, their heart is not weak, but they have a lot of PVCs, meaning 10, 20%. We don't really know what to do with those people. We know that most of them will do just fine, but there's some of them may develop heart failure. To reassure patients, I often tell them about my grandfather who um, was denied life insurance when he was like in his 20s because he had a lot of PVCs. And he retired at the age of 92 and then passed away uh, for reasons unrelated to his heart at the age of 97. Um, so certainly people can live a very long time and have a very uh, vibrant uh, life with a lot of PVCs. Um, so how do we know... Oh, uh, so I should say, if someone falls in that category, what I generally do, and, and many of my colleagues, is we just tell the patient, let's just check to make sure the heart is staying strong about once a year. And we do that with an ultrasound or an echocardiogram. So I'll see them back every year, every couple years, to check uh, an echocardiogram. So again, how do we know if the heart is weak? So we use this echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound. It's the most common way to, to assess the structure and the function of the heart and the, and the heart valves. We call it an echo for short, not to be confused with an electrocardiogram, which is an EKG or ECG for short. Um, more and more, we're using M cardiac MRI uh, as well. 
um, which can help us uh, see how strong the heart is. We use that primarily to look at the actual characteristics of the tissue, to look for scar tissue, uh, for example. Okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, catheter ablation procedures. So the first part of any catheter ablation is to do a diagnostic study, typically. And we put these catheters through veins in the leg, sometimes in the neck, into certain areas of the heart. So here we have one in the right ventricle. Here we have one that actually records a little signal that shows us where the hiss is exactly in the AV node, one in a vein called the coronary sinus, and one in the atrium. And wherever these lie, we can record electrical signals. We can also pace and activate the heart and do maneuvers to try to understand the nature of the rhythm uh, or abnormal rhythms, which essentially is what an arrhythmia is a person is having. So when we do an ablation, we advance a special catheter that can deliver energy. Usually, this is radio frequency energy that burns the area of the heart uh, that is the culprit for their arrhythmia. So this would be an example of a PAC ablation uh, where the PAC is arising from the right, this part of the right atrium. Now, multiple PACs in a row create what we call atrial tachycardia. So uh, there's a bunch of beats, and I'll talk about that in just a second. Now, how do we know exactly where to go with this catheter? So there are a couple of ways. One, the EKG itself, especially a full 12-lead EKG, gives us some idea of where the PAC is coming from. But then what we do during this procedure, and this is one of the more simple sorts of ablations we do, is we map that atrial tachycardia. So we have an EKG going real time on our screen all the time. And then we look inside the heart. And so if, for example, we looked over here, if, let's assume this atrial tachycardia is arising here. If we look here, we see that it looks relatively late. We go a little further over here, we see, oh, it's getting later compared to when we're seeing those P waves on the EKG. We go in this direction, oh, it's getting earlier. We go in this direction, oh, it's getting earlier. Then we go up, oh, it just got a little later. And what we end up doing is using these three-dimensional mapping systems that actually enable us to draw the shell of the heart and to color code uh, the activation or the the time of the activation throughout the heart. And we can even make movies, and you can see the wavefront from these rhythms propagate out from their origin. And when we're here, we see, wow, that is the earliest spot. That's even way before we even see the beginning of the EKG P wave. We can also pace there and prove that when we activate the atrium there, the P wave looks exactly like the atrial tachycardia uh, P wave. And, that, and then we burn there and say, oh, it went away. That must have been uh, the spot. So atrial tachycardia is, by definition, three or more of these PACs or, or early beats in the atrium in a row. In general, when we're talking about fast rhythms, when we say sustained, that has a very specific meaning, which is greater than 30 seconds. Again, like PACs and PVCs, it's very common to see even atrial tachycardia, some, some, some of these beats in a row, when we monitor someone for some period of time, and usually we don't worry about it. Oftentimes, it's just seconds at a time. Rarely, patients may be really bothered by atrial tachycardia. They may have very sustained episodes where it lasts for half an hour or an hour, um, and then we generally uh, want to treat it. Now, just as we can have atrial tachycardia, we can have ventricular tachycardia, which we also call VT. Um, so again, 
Three or more of those PVCs in a row would be um, VT, sustained again more than 30 seconds. This also can be very bothersome, but it can be something we can just see on monitoring, especially non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. If the heart is structurally normal, and we often are, it's really important in, in the field of arrhythmias, many times we're making this distinction between the same rhythm in a structurally normal heart versus a not structurally normal heart. What do I mean by structurally normal? Meaning the person has not had a heart attack, and I'll describe what that means in a second, and meaning the, the squeeze, the strength of the heart is normal, and in general, we mean the heart is not too thick. A heart attack <clears throat> means that there is an abrupt blockage of blood flow to the heart, and the tissue, the heart tissue that is supplied by that blood flow dies. That is a heart attack. That's due to, usually, rupture of a cholesterol plaque in an artery supplying blood to the heart. So if someone's had that, they, by definition, have a scar in their heart. So if the patient has a structurally normal heart, normal strength, they've never had a heart attack, <clears throat> and they have ventricular tachycardia, most of the time, that is not a risk for dying. And again, they fall into the category of, we're happy to treat this if this is bothering you, if you're really symptomatic. Conversely, if they've had a heart attack or if their heart is weak, that VT is very different. Um, and there, we worry about a risk of sudden death. So I do see a lot of patients, you know, nurses in general, well, I should say physicians and nurses, healthcare providers in general, are taught appropriately about the dangers of VT. But what happens is then I see young, healthy people who have this VT in a structurally normal heart, and they're freaking out because everybody else was freaking out. Oh, no, you had VT? That's horrible. But, and they're relieved to hear that for them, it's not uh, so dangerous. But we have to be very careful when we see it in people with structurally abnormal hearts. And the concern is in those weak hearts or hearts that have had a heart attack that it can degenerate into this rhythm that is always a problem uh, called ventricular fibrillation or VF. And just like, well, we'll talk about atrial fibrillation, which is a disorganized chaotic activity in the atrium. Ventricular fibrillation is the same thing. Very chaotic, super rapid activity in the ventricles. So fast, so chaotic, that the heart just can't push blood forward. So um, uh, VF um, can occur, as I mentioned, in people with a heart attack and with a weak heart. There are also some inherited syndromes that are associated with VF. And those can either be structural, there's an abnormal shape to the heart, or the structure of the heart may be totally normal and they can be electrical. Um, those would be things such as the long QT syndrome or the Brugada syndrome. The only way to treat VF when it happens is with a shock to the heart. And the symptoms of VF are really passing out typically abruptly uh, and death. So how do we prevent or treat VF? So some drugs <clears throat> can reduce the risk of VF, and, and the most proven are a class of drugs called beta blockers. They all end in uh, LOL, <laughs> metoprolol or carvedilol as examples. Atenolol um, is another example. Amiodarone is another drug that can suppress or reduce the risk for VF. If a patient is felt to be at high enough risk for VF, in the absence of something reversible or easily addressable, um, then that's when we think about putting in a 
implantable cardioverter defibrillator, or an ICD. So what would be an example of something reversible? So a big heart attack. If someone has a big heart attack and they go into VF in the setting of that, and then they have an angioplasty or a bypass that addresses that blockage, usually that's not an indication for this implantable cardioverter defibrillator. Or someone was using cocaine, which can cause VF. That's one of the big concerns about it. Um, that is reversible. If they stop using cocaine, they're probably not going to have VF. Um, then we don't need to put in this ICD. So the implantable cardioverter defibrillator, um, the procedure of mechanically placing it is almost identical to, in fact, pretty much identical to placing a pacemaker. Um, the generator is a little bigger. It has a capacitor that can deliver this huge amount of energy to deliver a shock. And you'll notice on this lead, there are these coils. So these coils kind of receive that energy. And the way this works is you have a lead in the ventricle, and you program it, and you tell that device, if this patient's heart rate goes faster than whatever we decide to program, typically 210, something like that, for more than 10 seconds, give them a shock. Um, if someone has VT and they have an ICD, and that VT is due to a circuit, sometimes we can also pace uh, that a little faster, and that can break the circuit and get them out of VT without the pain of a shock, because the shock's are generally painful, but they have a good reason. And, they, and these work very well, actually, to, to save lives in those who, in whom uh, the device is indicated. Okay, so I don't want to cause any alarm and make everybody worry, oh, no, am I prone to VF? Um, in general, no. So how do we identify these people at risk uh, for VF? So one <clears throat> is if there's been, a, in terms of these inherited syndromes, if there has been a family member or several family members that died suddenly without explanation at an early age. So a uh, patient's father died in his 30s. He just collapsed and died and was otherwise fine. And his brother, the same thing happened. And then uh, the paternal cousin, same thing happened. Then we really have a heightened suspicion, and that person should be seen by an electrophysiologist. We often ask about the early death as well because sometimes you can elicit a history of this that was attributed to something else. So some people are told, well, he died of a heart attack. And I described what a heart attack is. So if someone just collapsed and died, um, that may be an arrhythmic, a VF death. A heart attack, to know it was a heart attack would mean the person had crushing chest pain, they went to the hospital, they were told they had a heart attack. Now, certainly that can lead to death. Um, but if they didn't have those and they just collapsed and died, we think about maybe this was an arrhythmic death, or someone was driving, they were fine, and they just you know, drove off a cliff for no apparent reason. We have to think about, did that person have VF? So another <clears throat> group of patients, and this is really the kind of the um, largest group of, of patients, are those that have had previous heart attacks that were quite severe, or those whose hearts are weak. Um, and we again, using an echocardiogram, we can quantify that. And that tends to be the most common reason for what we call a primary prevention ICD, meaning, or implantable cardioverter defibrillator, meaning we're putting it in before they ever have VF, so primary prevention. And then sometimes there are people that have a very worrisome history. We talked about the most common cause of passing out being vaso vasovagal syncope, which is totally benign. Um, in some cases, if someone passes out and has certain features that make us worried, um, that may make us do more evaluations 
and lead us down the road towards an ICD. And worrisome type of passing out would be someone just drops without any warning whatsoever. No, uh, they don't feel crummy. They don't feel faint first. They just drop. And one way to know if that happened, because people can hit their head and forget, is if they fracture something, they fracture their face. That was a very sudden loss of blood flow that VF could do. Whereas vasovagal syncope tends to be more, it can happen fairly suddenly, but tends to be a little bit more gradual. Or if someone passes out during exercise, that tends to be a worrisome symptom and something that, again, we should see that person. It's important to note it's not, if someone is working out, for example, lifting weights and lifting weights and lifting weights and they're really struggling, and then they put the weight down and then they feel faint, that's much less concerning because that implies that's due to more vagal tone when they're done with their exercise or they were tensing quite a bit and then they relaxed. Or someone's struggling biking up a hill, they finally get to the top of the hill, they're fine, then they go a little bit and then they feel a little faint. We should still see that person, but that's less concerning than someone's running down a basketball court and boom, suddenly passes out. Those are the people that you hear later on uh, die suddenly. And some of them, um, we, would, we wouldn't put a defibrillator in based just on that history, but we would worry about that and we would do an echo, maybe a, an MRI, certainly an EKG to uh, get a good uh, history of the family. Okay, so back to more kind of symptomatic fast rhythms. So there's a, there's a big category here called, uh, or a bunch of rhythms that fall under the common category of supraventricular tachycardia that we, um, for short, we call it SVT. And there are a number of mechanisms that can lead to SVT, and I'll go through these. The way this manifests is that a person very suddenly has, boom, suddenly their heart rate is beating out of their chest, going very fast. It was normal, and then now it's going 240, 200 beats per minute. And they can feel, again, out of breath, really just exhausted, feel faint. This is not a subtle diagnosis the great majority of the time. This isn't like, well, maybe I have that. If you have to think about it, you, don't, you, almost, you probably, probably don't have this. And again, there are several mechanisms. The most common is a rhythm called uh, AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, which we shorten as AVNRT. And this happens when people have essentially two pathways in their AV node, which is actually not terribly uncommon. And what can happen is that a circuit forms. It goes down one of those pathways and then goes up the other. The second most common of these SVTs is someone has what we call an accessory pathway, a little sliver of muscle that connects the atrium to the ventricle. And what can happen there is, again, a circuit forms going down the AV node, the his his, uh, Purkinje system, they're going down one of these bundle branches, then up that pathway. They can have a circuit in the atrium that we call atrial flutter. I'll talk about that a little bit more in the context of atrial fibrillation, and then we already talked about atrial tachycardia. Now, as I mentioned, most commonly, these are AVNRT, or we call this AVRT, atrioventricular reciprocating tachycardia, uh, using an accessory pathway. You'll notice that both of those rely on the AV node. So you can break them or terminate them if you can slow the AV node for just a second. One fairly straightforward way to do that is to increase vagal tone, and you can do that by pushing on your neck, which you shouldn't do if you have high blood pressure and are older and there's a risk that there's a uh, cholesterol plaque there, or just bearing down. can increase vagal tone and can uh, suddenly terminate these rhythms. 
Now, a very common scenario that um, Jeff probably sees all the time in the ER is someone comes in with this SVT, their heart rate's going 180, 200 beats per minute. Um, and what they will do when they come in the ER, or, or paramedics can do this as well, is put an IV in and give this drug called adenosine that works very well to block the AV node for just a few seconds. Um, and I'm often told by patients I see in clinic, yeah, they gave me some medicine and it just kind of stopped my heart for a second and that stopped this SVT. And that is very helpful because that is highly suggestive that those patients have either AVNRT or AVRT, both of which are extremely amenable to ablation, uh, as I'll talk about. Now, the beta blockers I, I mentioned um, that help reduce the risk of VF, they also slow the AV node. The way that beta blockers work is essentially the receptors for adrenaline on the heart act on what are called beta receptors. So beta blockers block those beta receptors. So they essentially block the activity of adrenaline on the heart. As I mentioned, the heart always has the sympathetic tone, the adrenaline side, and the parasympathetic influencing it. So if, if you block one, then you get more of the other. So giving a beta blocker, for example, can terminate this. And also beta blockers can be useful drugs for people with SVT to take long-term to potentially prevent episodes. There's another class of drugs called calcium channel blockers. So the sinus node and the AV node rely heavily on these channels through which calcium flows to determine their rates. And so these calcium channel blockers, which also are used for high blood pressure, uh, beta blockers are, can be used for that as well, can also slow the AV node or sinus node um, potentially terminate these fast rhythms and also uh, be used to prevent them. So as I mentioned, catheter ablation can be extremely useful for these patients. In general, SVT is not a life-threatening condition. So the reason to treat it, once again, is for quality of life. It can really affect, negatively affect quality of life. And some people don't want to take medicines for the rest of their lives to prevent this. Some case, sometimes they do, and they try it, and they still have SVT. And again, catheter ablation, uh, which is very safe for this procedure, it's considered first line by the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, Heart Rhythm Society, along with medicines. So if someone has symptomatic SVT, they've come to the ER, very reasonable to offer them at least an ablation or medicines. So this is an example of ablating AV nodal rancher and tachycardia, where our target is one of those pathways. The, the pathways tend to have different properties. One tends to be a little fast, one tends to be a little slow. We target the slow pathway. This is an example of a catheter ablation where there's an accessory pathway, one of those little slivers of muscle between the atrium and the ventricle. We map exactly where that is, burn it, and can get rid of it uh, most of the time. Now, there is this special circumstance um, around accessory pathways that it's worth spending a little time on, um, and that is something called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which is, uh, in sh for short, is WPW. Most of these accessory pathways conduct backwards only. They can only conduct from the ventricle to the atrium. So most of the time, we can't see them on a regular EKG. The person may just come in with SVT, and we think, hmm, maybe that's due to an accessory pathway, going down the AV node and, and the His bundle and the bundle branch and up the accessory pathway. Once in a while, these accessory pathways can conduct in the other direction as well. Now, you may say, well, why would it conduct backwards and not in the other direction? And actually, it's kind of a physics thing. So if you think about you have this little sliver of muscle, and you have this big ventricle with all this voltage when it depolarizes. It's very easy to 
take all that voltage through that little sliver muscle and depolarize this thin little atrium. In contrast, it's very hard for this thin little atrium to go through that sliver muscle and depolarize this big ventricle. So we think that probably the accessory pathways that can conduct going down are thicker. And in general, when they can conduct going down, they also can conduct the other way. Now, who cares? Why, why is that important? Why am I spending time on this? So the reason is that some people who have these accessory pathways that can conduct in this other way, number one, we can recognize that on a regular old 12-lead EKG, even when the person is in a normal rhythm, and I'll describe why that is. But the reason this is really important is because those patients may be at risk for sudden death. So it's very different than other people with SVT. When someone has WPW, we always have to think about the risk for sudden death, and that's a risk we can eliminate with catheter ablation. Now, why are they at risk for sudden death? So let's first look at these EKGs. So this is someone who had WPW here, and then they had a successful ablation, and now they have a normal EKG. So let's start with the normal. So again, these P waves represent depolarization of the atria, the upper chambers. And again, there's this kind of isoelectric flat line when the AV node is being depolarized because the AV node doesn't have a lot of muscle, doesn't have a lot of uh, voltage, so we don't see anything. Then you have this narrow QRS. Again, it's narrow because you have rapid conduction down the His bundle and the bundle branches. Okay? Prior to that, notice a couple of things. Number one, you have the P wave, and then immediately after the P wave, you have the beginning of the QRS. There's no flat line there, okay, which is usually when the AV node is being conducted. And notice that the QRS is wider, it's slurred. Now, why is this happening? That's because you start in the sinus node, that propagates through the atrium, you go down the AV node, but at the same time you go down the accessory pathway, there's no delay through the AV node, you go right to the ventricle. But because you're going right to the ventricle and not through this rapidly conducting conduction tissue, the, it's a little slurred because you're conducting muscle to muscle. Okay? This by itself is not necessarily dangerous. It just shows us, oh, this person has an accessory pathway that conducts what we call antigrade from top to bottom. They have WPW. They have a WPW pattern on their EKG. The WPW syndrome means that they have this pattern plus they have some symptoms. They feel their heart um, beating fast or they've passed out. And those are the people who may be at risk for sudden death. The reason is that people with WPW are especially prone to developing atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, in general, is not felt to be an imminently dangerous rhythm. In atrial fibrillation, the top chambers are going 400 times a minute. Usually, the ventricles are protected from that atrial fibrillation by the AV node. So the AV node, the faster it's bombarded, the slower it conducts. So even though the atria may be going 400 times per minute, for example, in atrial fibrillation, the ventricles, which is really what generates the pulse, might be going 110, 130, 140. Uh, people aren't going to die from that. If, however, you have this accessory pathway, which is just a piece of muscle, it's not, doesn't have those special properties of the AV node, that just will conduct the, the, those, those signals right through. So if the atria are going 400 times a minute, the, the accessory pathway says, come on, come on in. And the, if the ventricles go that fast, then the person can die. Essentially, that can lead to ventricular fibrillation and they can, they can die. <clears throat> now, not all pathways that conduct antigrade in this direction 
are capable of conducting that fast. So that's kind of our first job is to assess how robust is the anterograde conduction of this pathway. And we can test that, for example, during our EP study, where we can pace the heart. And if we pace it fast and we see, oh, yeah, that accessory pathway is blocking, then we know it's not a risk for sudden death. But if it conducts fast, then we know we really need to ablate that pathway and get rid of it. And usually we get rid of it anyway because the patient's been bothered by, by their symptoms. Okay, so a little bit more about atrial fibrillation, which I've already described, is this chaotic, very rapid uh, rhythm in the atrium that normally the great majority of the time is transmitted to the ventricles through the AV node. The ventricles then conduct usually fast, but also irregularly. This rhythm has been studied extensively, so we know a lot more about this than we do about PACs and PVCs, even though those are very common. So we kind of know what the risk factors are here. So getting older, being a man, uh, we and others have shown that Caucasian race and specifically actually European ancestry is a risk. doesn't mean that uh, non-whites don't, uh, don't get it. They certainly do. Um, but there is a higher risk. Hypertension, heart failure, diabetes, coronary disease, alcohol, which, um, as Jeff mentioned, is an interest of mine. Uh, we have several studies ongoing to try to understand this relationship between alcohol and AFib. Uh, people who are bigger have a bigger body mass index. Obstructive sleep apnea. We recently showed that people who have more uh, sleep disruption, even after adjusting for sleep apnea, have a higher risk for AFib and if the thyroid uh, is overactive. Now, some people may, may have none of those symptoms and still have atrial fibrillation. In those cases, there may be a little bit more of an inherited component. And again, this is an example of uh, something that is deserving of its own talk. I've given talks here before dedicated specifically to AFib, and again, happy to answer uh, questions about it. So in terms of the symptoms, it's important to understand that AFib can, in some cases, come and go on its own. We call that paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, or it can be there all the time. And we call that persistent atrial fibrillation. Patients may feel fatigued, short of breath, may feel faint. They may just feel kind of off or anxious, not, not quite themselves, um, many others. But importantly, atrial fibrillation, like the other rhythms I've described, most of them, can be totally asymptomatic. Atrial fibrillation is different than almost all the other rhythms I talked about in that we really care if even though it's asymptomatic, and that is because of this risk of stroke. Now, why does stroke happen in the setting of atrial fibrillation? And atrial fibrillation is one of the most common causes of stroke. So the theory is that during that chaotic rhythm, the atria are not contracting as strong as they normally would, and whenever blood tends to sit, it tends to clot. And there's a structure that comes off the left atrium called the left atrial appendage where blood clots tend to form in the setting of atrial fibrillation. So this is what's called a transesophageal echo where we have our, a patient swallow essentially this ultrasound probe and the left atrium actually sits behind the right atrium. So it's right in front of the swallowing tube. And this is a view of the appendage, the inside of the appendage, and these guys are clots. Uh, a clot we also called a thrombus, or plural would be thrombi. So we always have to think about that, even if the patient feels fine when they're in atrial fibrillation. Now, the way we make a diagnosis is through, again, the electrocardiogram. Here, you'll see there are no P waves. You remember every other one I showed, there were nice P waves showing organized contraction of the atrium. Here, it's just a wavy line. 
You'll notice that the ventricles, also the pattern here, is irregular. So the kind of telltale sign of atrial fibrillation is that the rhythm is irregularly irregular. There's no pattern to it whatsoever. You can have a regularly irregular rhythm, meaning, for example, every third beat is a little early. But this is just completely chaotic. So in my clinics, I, I very frequently see patients who have had a recent diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, and I tell them I like to break down the goals of treatment into three parts. And these are, uh, we have to address all of them. Addressing one does not help with the other two. So number one, we want to prevent thromboembolism, meaning thrombus, remember, is the blood clot. Embolism essentially means that something is traveling in the bloodstream from one place to another. And I show this picture of the, the whole body because we often think about stroke, and that is extremely important. But these blood clots can go elsewhere. So there's evidence now that those with AFib are at high risk of heart attack. So instead of a plaque rupture, they may just get a blood clot that forms in the appendage, breaks off, goes down one of those arteries, and blocks that artery, causes a heart attack. Um, it can lead to kidney disease. There's growing evidence it can lead to dementia. And the thought is there that maybe people are having little tiny showers of clots over a long period of time. You know, one big clot that blocks an artery supplying the brain could cause a stroke. But little, little, little clots over a long period of time might lead to dementia. So really important to think about preventing that complication. Second, and I would say much less important, is avoiding prolonged fast ventricular rates. And this is uh, what I alluded to earlier, that if someone is going 120, 130, 24-7, even when they're asleep for weeks and weeks, the heart can get weak. And then the third is, again, helping to improve quality of life for people who have symptoms. And this is when we think about a procedure called a cardioversion, where we shock the patient out of AFib back into a normal rhythm. That works really well to get them out of AFib, but it does nothing to prevent the AFib from coming back. And most of the time, the AFib is coming back. It's just a question of when. So there are a number of drugs we can prescribe, I've listed them here, that can help suppress the AFib. And then we do have a catheter ablation procedure for atrial fibrillation that actually works better than any drug, um, but it's less effective, as I'll describe, uh, than uh, what we have for SVT ablation, for example. Okay, when we're thinking about preventing thromboembolism, we're, we are generally thinking, does this patient, would this patient benefit from a blood thinner? And I'll give examples of blood thinners in a second. And to make that decision, we also look at their other risk factors that are listed here. And in general, if they have one or more of these risk factors, uh, mainly older age, heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, a previous stroke, uh, vascular disease like a uh, previous heart attack, um, then we're going to recommend a blood thinner. There is this finding that women do seem to be at higher risk. The one exception is if the only issue is the person is a woman, but they're otherwise they don't have any of these other risk factors, currently the feeling is they probably do not necessarily need uh, a blood thinner. But we are thinking about the risk of preventing thromboembolism, preventing stroke, versus the risk of bleeding that does come with these. Fortunately, these newer drugs have a pretty low risk of, of bleeding. So when we talk about these blood thinners to prevent thromboembolism in the setting of atrial fibrillation, we're, it used to be we were only talking about warfarin, which is the same thing as Coumadin. Warfarin works by blocking the synthesis of clotting factors, and specifically the clotting factors that rely on vitamin K. 
Um, so this has several ramifications. One, when you start warfarin, you already have clotting factors. It doesn't do anything to the existing clotting factors. So it takes several days to have an effect because you need to wait for those clotting factors to go away and the ones you would have made to, to then be lower. Two, vitamin K is in green leafy vegetables. Vitamin K is also made by the bacteria in our gut. So warfarin is notoriously unpredictable in terms of its potency. This is why we have to often adjust the dose and we have to constantly check levels. It's called the INR to see how thin the blood is uh, when we're prescribing warfarin. Finally, warfarin, all of these have a risk for bleeding. What we've learned with these new drugs I'll talk about in more detail in just a second is that warfarin seems to have a higher risk of bleeding in the brain than all of these other ones. So a lot of the calculations we've made and a lot of the recommendations that have been made are in understanding there's a balance and thinking just about warfarin. Well, yes, this person's at risk for stroke, uh, so I can start this blood thinner, but then I know I'm putting them at risk for a stroke due to a bleed in the brain. We have to, it's, it's a very low risk, and it tends to be much lower than the risk of stroke in the setting of AFib, but that is part of our calculus. Now, we now have these new drugs, and I've listed them all here, dabigatran, which is also called Bradaxa, rivaroxaban, also called Xeralto, apixaban, also called Eliquis, and adoxaban, also called Cevesa. These are referred to as novel oral anticoagulants, or NOACs, or direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs. So these do not affect the synthesis or the manufacture of clotting factors. Instead, they block uh, a, 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 the effect of a clotting factor. So that means, unlike warfarin, we had to wait for those uh, factors to, to go away. It works almost immediately. You have some effect within a couple of hours and a full effect within a day or two. Similarly, when you stop it, the effect is pretty much gone in a, in a day or two, whereas with warfarin, it would take um, several days. Because the effect is much more predictable, it's not relying, has nothing to do with vitamin K. So diet doesn't tend to matter as much. The, the bugs in our gut don't tend to matter. So we don't need to check levels. And these have been approved and studied in tens of thousands of people in randomized trials, each one compared to warfarin, without any sort of monitoring. And they all were found to be at least as effective as Coumadin in some cases, or warfarin, in some cases, lower overall bleeding risk. In every case, a much lower risk of bleeding in the brain. So we're becoming, because of the convenience of these, because of the lower uh, uh, risk of bleeding in the brain, the tendency is to um, recommend these more strongly than we used to with, with warfarin, um, and even in those uh, at uh, a bit lower risk. Now, you may have seen these scary ads on TV about bleeding uh, you know, related to, to litigation. So there is a risk of bleeding, but the point is, is that the risk of not taking them tends to far exceed the risk of taking them, especially if someone with atrial fibrillation has one of those other risk factors I listed. And the reality is that no one calls a lawyer or alerts the presses if they come into the ER bleeding because of their warfarin, because warfarin's been around forever. Um, there's a senior investigator who's involved in, in some of these original studies who says, patients don't call you in the middle of the night to thank you because they didn't have a stroke, right? And that's the exception, that I, I prescribe these drugs all the time, and once in a while, a patient says, yeah, I had this nosebleed or I uh, had some bruising, but they don't call you all the times they didn't have a stroke, right? It's, you can't 
measure that. Um, it's just part of being human, uh, but the reality is that the benefit tends to be when people take them. And we know that these, and warfarin and, and uh, these blood thinners in general, are um, horribly under-prescribed. So this is a study we did where we looked at hundreds of thousands of atrial fibrillation patients throughout the country cared for by cardiologists. And essentially, um, so this is that score I described. So these are people with, with very high risk. So if they get nine points here, those, all those risk factors. And really, the appropriately anticoagulated people here are in this dark color. So all of these people were not receiving appropriate anticoagulation. And we excluded people who had bleeding or clear contraindications. So generally, in the medical field, we do a poor job of appropriately anticoagulating patients, and that's something we need to work on. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about ablation of atrial fibrillation. So uh, again, generally, this is for symptoms, um, and this is the most effective way to suppress atrial fibrillation, but as I mentioned, less effective than other procedures. Now, why is that? So I showed you for AVNRT, we have a clear target, or for an accessory pathway is a good example. We have a very clear target. We can prove during that procedure, we got rid of that accessory pathway. It is not coming back. Atrial fibrillation is much more complicated than that. The goal in, in this procedure is we go to the left side of the heart. We make a little hole, actually, here that seals up when we're done. And the goal is to electrically isolate these veins that come into the left atrium. Here's the kind of the exit of the vein. We put this catheter here to measure the electrical activity there, and then we burn around it until that electrical activity goes away. And we know that this works about 70% of the time in atrial fibrillation patients to get, keep their AFib away for at least a year. Bunch of reasons why this may work. In some cases, they have triggers or early beats coming from the veins that triggers their AFib, and by electrically isolating that, that prevents the AFib. There are many uh, reasons why there, there might be other benefits to this procedure, potentially related to the way the nervous system interacts with the heart, or potentially breaking up kind of partially reentrant wavelets that may occur in the setting of AFib. Now, atrial flutter deserves a little special comment because it often travels with atrial fibrillation. So people with atrial flutter most of the time have had AFib, uh, uh, and many people with atrial fibrillation may also have atrial flutter. So this is a circuit that goes around most of the time, not every time, but 90-plus percent of the time around the right atrium, specifically actually around this valve. And I show this to you to, to demonstrate that this is actually a case where, where ablation works really well, and medicines work very poorly for atrial flutter. And just to give you an example of what we do when someone has atrial flutter, so we first prove that, yes, indeed, that's where the circuit is. This is one of our catheters here. And then we draw a line with our ablation catheter from the valve into this big vein called the inferior vena cava, and that interrupts the circuit and prevents that circuit from ever happening again. So the cure rate using ablation for atrial flutter is very high, 95 97% of the time. So how do we make a diagnosis? So um, generally... We need to see the, the arrhythmia, the abnormal heart rhythm, at the time it's happening to make an ultimate diagnosis. The gold standard for that is with an electrocardiogram, and this is a picture of obtaining an electrocardiogram. We now have these very convenient ways to monitor people at home. So this is an example of a device called a Zeo patch, which is just this adhesive patch that people can wear for up to two weeks. There are a number of kind of wearable monitors people can wear to monitor their heart rhythm over a longer period of time. 
If someone has very infrequent episodes, we can put in a loop recorder. So it used to be this bigger one where we would make an incision, put it under the skin, and sew that up. Now we use this smaller device, this one made by Medtronic. There's another one made by St. Jude where we simply inject it, put some tape over, and then we can um, communicate with that via computer and see what the heart rhythm is doing, and it can... Um, it will automatically record rhythms that are very fast or very slow, or a patient has an indicator where they can kind of press a button and collect that uh, information. Now there are these consumer-facing um, devices that you can purchase. Um, so one company that's been around for a while is called AliveCore. So they have a device that pairs with a smartphone, and you can touch these two electrodes and record an EKG. They have a similar device um, that uses a band connected to a smartwatch. This is what the new Apple Watch is going to be able to do, is essentially the same thing as a live core. And in every case, you can download a PDF of this rhythm and potentially send it to your doctor. Uh, both the live core and Apple um, have algorithms to potentially detect atrial fibrillation. They're not perfect, but they can flag rhythms that may be AFib uh, that then may prompt people to, to send those to their physician. Um, I sometimes recommend uh, my patients purchase an Alive Core when their symptoms are infrequent, but we've had that discussion about quality of life and they really want to know what it is. Um, this is one way to, to capture it. Now, we published a study um, last year demonstrating that the heart rate sensor on the Apple Watch could reliably detect atrial fibrillation. And we used artificial intelligence or a machine learning algorithm to train an app on the smartwatch based just on the pulse without the EKG. So this is something we'll likely be seeing more and more of, and this may be one way to flag people who are asymptomatic because theoretically it can be continuously monitoring someone passively so they don't have to do anything and send them an alert that, oh, you may have AFib. Um, we don't think that this will be sufficient to make a diagnosis, but maybe will help screen for atrial fibrillation. Now, there's a lot of controversy about screening atrial fibrillation, and there's no consensus that we should do that because we understand there may be a lot of false positives, uh, undue anxiety, healthcare utilization that arise due to this. So we have to do a lot of work, a lot of good research, hopefully, on this to figure out who are the right people to use this and how to train these algorithms to, to be accurate. Okay, so in conclusion, or conclusions, um, generally, you do not need to worry about an abnormal heart rate we will do something or we worry when the patient in general does not feel well. And I didn't emphasize this at all, but it's good to exercise and to intentionally raise your heart rate, ideally in a sustained way if you can. Extra heartbeats are very common um, and not usually a cause for alarm at all. Usually we treat for symptoms. The one exception these days is if there are very frequent PVCs, uh, that may warrant more follow-up. Pacemakers work essentially to help with slow heart rates. All a pacemaker can do is to prevent the heart from going too slow. Um, generally, it's not due to because of a number of the heart rate. It has more to do with symptoms. ICDs, or implantable cardioverter defibrillators, work well to save lives in those prone to ventricular fibrillation. SVT, or supraventricular tachycardia, that results in severe symptoms, can be tra uh, treated with medicines or potentially cured uh, with ablation. Atrial fibrillation carries a risk for stroke and other thromboembolic complications we talked about that can be prevented very effectively by blood thinners. Medicines and ablation can help improve quality of life in atrial fibrillation. 
Finally, the diagnosis of an arrhythmia generally requires we catch it as it's happening, and these new wearable technologies will become more and more useful, hopefully, in helping us to diagnose those arrhythmias, but we have to take that in the context of understanding when not to worry and when to do something, which was kind of the whole point of this talk, uh, which I hope you found useful. Thank you. Great question. So the question was, can, can we determine on autopsy if someone's passed away from ventricular fibrillation? So I'll give you a little back history because it's worth spending a little bit of time on uh, and is related directly to one of my colleagues' uh, really kind of pioneering work here at UCSF. So um, when someone dies suddenly, the assumption is they've had ventricular fibrillation. In fact, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So this colleague of mine uh, has an NIH grant where he is doing autopsies on every sudden death, and actually he's just about completed this or already completed this, every sudden death in San Francisco. And what they're finding is actually these people are having cardiac rupture or metastatic cancer in some proportion. But in general, to answer your question, um, if they don't find any of those things, we assume it's arrhythmic or ventricular fibrillation. Sometimes you find other evidence in the heart, such as scar in the heart, maybe from a previous heart attack, that really heightens one's suspicion it was ventricular fibrillation. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's, pretty, it's felt to be pretty reliable <clears throat> because if something is severe enough to cause death, uh, there, there aren't really other things that exist um, except maybe seizure disorder that, that could do that without leaving some trace. Yeah, so um, the question really is, I think, kind of a two-part. How do you know you're not feeling well because of the arrhythmia? I think that's kind of the, the main question. That's a common question. And so one can have a symptom and one can have an arrhythmia and they may, may be true, true, unrelated. So for someone who feels faint intermittently, what we really want to do is have them wearing a monitor and know that when they feel faint, that's also when the heart is going too slow. Because certainly people can feel faint because their blood vessels are dilating. It's not an arrhythmia issue. And their heart rate may go slow intermittently. But we, want, we have to connect them. So it's unlikely then related to the heart rhythm issue. It may be blood vessels dilating. And it's very common, by the way, I should say, when one s- stands up quickly to feel a little faint. That's generally not a reason to work. Yeah. Hmm. How many ablations can a person have? So there isn't, again, there isn't a number, um, and it's kind of a judgment call. For SVT, as I described, the great majority of the time it's one procedure. Once in a while we may do a second one. In contrast, in atrial fibrillation, it's very common for an atrial fibrillation ablation to try another one. Sometimes it's just after a few months. Some people do great for five years, and then their atrial fibrillation comes back. Um, One of the things that can happen with atrial fibrillation ablations is we can organize the atrial fibrillation into atrial flutters that in some ways then provide a better target. So it's not terribly uncommon, this is, this is more the exception, but we see this, where you do a couple of AFib ablations and then someone develops flutters. And I usually have a conversation with the patient, here are the pros and cons, the reasons to do it, reasons not to do it, but I will sometimes pursue those. Um, some people will have three, four ablations, um, and it, it depends. It should be a discussion with the patient in my mind. In, in AFib, atrial fibrillation, in, in really no case should it be that a doctor says, you need to have this ablation. The, ex- the only exception to that really is when someone has WPW, as we talked about, because there's a risk of sudden death. 
it's not like treating hypertension where if you have high blood pressure, you should be taking your blood pressure medicines, or you have diabetes, you need to get your sugar down. Um, this is primarily about quality of life, so it's about a discussion and, and the pros and cons. There is another procedure I didn't really talk about, where if atrial fibrillation is poorly controlled, and either the person is too frail maybe to have the full AFib ablation, or medicines have failed and regular AFib ablation has failed, what we can do is ablate the AV node, so then the person still has atrial fibrillation, but that doesn't get communicated to the ventricles because we've damaged the AV node, and then we put in a pacemaker. So now they have a pacemaker, but now their heart rate never goes too fast, and it's always regular. And a lot of those patients, I always tell them, um, these tend to be the patients I see a lot of. We've talked a lot, and we've, we've tried a bunch of things, and then we do that AV node ablation and pacemaker, and then I don't see them anymore, and I see them a year later. How's it going? going fine. And I see him a year later, and it's a very quick kind of visit. Um, so that can work really well. So that would be considered another ablation, but sometimes that happens after a couple tries with a regular ablation. Yeah, well, so that gets pretty complicated pretty quickly, actually. So the question is uh, describing the electrical impulse inside the heart. So again, every cell, muscle cell, and specialized conduction tissue cell, because there are cells called fibroblasts that make scar tissue, essentially. But those cells can conduct electricity. So it's true that because those cells are so well-connected electrically that a small current can have this effect of a wavefront through the heart. But the sinus node is actually a, a group of many large cells that tend to have this automatic property, that, that almost a clock in them that over time they'll tend to reach a threshold that will then depolarize. But it is a, it's not just usually, not just one cell. Um, and there's, there's a lot of very interesting kind of complicated things related to how well insulated they are, and in some ways those that are more insulated and therefore less influenced by the outside can have more of an influence because they can propagate out to more and more and more cells. It's a, but it's a complicated topic. Yeah, so the question is about this connection between endurance athletes and atrial fibrillation. So which there is a connection um, that has been studied, but not extensively. And it seems to be in endurance athletes, especially highly trained endurance athletes. We don't completely understand why that happens. There are a couple of potential reasons. One is we know that a larger left atrium, all else being equal, is a risk factor for atrial fibrillation. And some highly trained athletes can develop a larger atrium. Second, there is this relationship between vagal tones. We talked about the parasympathetic nervous system and atrial fibrillation. Some people will describe uh, vagal sensations or vagal exposures as a trigger for their AFib. So some people will say, when I am full, that's when I get AFib. I've had patients who say, when I exercise, it goes away, when I increase sympathetic tone. And as I mentioned, people who are endurance athletes have very high vagal tone. Um, so we don't completely understand it. There is this relationship. Whether that atrial fibrillation is more benign long-term, we don't know. There are some data to suggest that, but again, it's, been, it's hard to study because we don't have huge populations of endurance athletes, but I certainly see many. Um, they do, in my experience, tend to be very amenable to ablation. Um, the way I think about it, and this is what a lot of my research is involved in, is that Atrial fibrillation is the final common pathway of multiple processes. So it could be because someone's older, 
They have a lot of scar in their heart. They've had high blood pressure. But it could be because someone's a highly trained athlete. Or it could be, even if we look at the genetic forms of atrial fibrillation that have been described, some of them are related to potassium channels that have to do with repolarization. Some of them are related to sodium channels that have to do with depolarization. But they're all leading to this common uh, AFib. Uh, it means uh, I, I don't. I don't have a great. I don't have a perfect definition. But someone who is, um, and you know, someone who's in beyond the ninety, probably the 99th percentile in fitness, um, and is usually a cyclist, long distance runner. But it's a spectrum, and again, there's almost certainly a gene environment interaction, right? Where there are some people that are getting AFib no matter what they do. Uh, there are some people who are never getting AFib no matter what they do. Some people that are, you know, so those people would have to be, you know, mega iron, you know, Ironman sort of triathletes to get maybe be prone to this. Um, and others maybe just need a little bit of endurance exercise. Now, the, other, the flip side is I don't want you all thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't be exercising because I'm going to get AFib. <laughs> so for the much larger population with AFib, there's good data. This excludes the more rare cases of trained athletes. Um, becoming more fit and losing weight can actually reduce AFib burden. So again, it just demonstrates there are different types of AFib. So this is a, a point I try to make to physicians, actually, is that we have to start thinking about AFib as, this, as having multiple mechanisms because the way we treat it, the way we think about it, should likely be different uh, depending on the type of patient. So... Um, Angina or angina imply, it means a certain type of chest pain that implies insufficient blood flow to the heart um, or um, usually due to a blockage in the, one of those arteries to the, to the heart. Usually not a complete blockage. There's something called stable angina or angina, which, which means with a given amount of exertion, the patient always has kind of the same amount of chest pain. That suggests there's a narrowing but not a complete blockage, as opposed to unstable angina, which means that it happens suddenly or it's changing, which might mean a new uh, blood clot. Um, so angina or angina itself is generally not directly heritable, but certainly people more prone to coronary disease uh, may, um, or people with coronary disease may have inherited that propensity to, from their uh, parents or grandparents. Can we see no symptoms? Angina, by definition, means chest pain or chest pressure or chest discomfort. So it's, by definition, symptomatic. So there was one more here, and I think that'll be the last one. Yeah, yeah it's almost primarily from these catheters that we place into the heart that are measuring the electrical activity locally. Um, we can use a conventional EKG to give us a sense, and in some cases it can be pretty specific as to where something is coming from. Others are working on essentially super high dense EKGs, where you can imagine a, a conventional EKG has 12 vectors to it. And they do this in such a dense way and match it up to anatomy using, for example, CT scan, that um, there's evidence that they can really hone in very specifically on where those rhythms are coming from. That is a little bit more experimental, but will be coming soon. And some places are starting to use that clinically. Thank you. Sure. All right. I think that's all the time we have. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.